0: Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and I'm glad to be with you another week here with uh, a new edition and focusing on some very critical issues. Uh, First of all, I'll I'll say at the the outset that I do not have an interview today, so it's, it's all me for the show. Uh, so that may be a good thing for some and not so much for others because we really strive to get quality interviews and i worked on that this week but it just did not happen so we are focused on several issues the first of which is something that's been very much in the news as of late Uh, it has been for off and on for a number of years but even more so recently with all of the focus on racial tensions and racial justice and police reform uh, but this is the issue of statues. Uh, this has come back into the forefront, and as we have seen, uh, many uh, statues have been taken down, uh, and others are being debated about whether they should be there or not. And so, the the title of this segment today is "If the Statues Could Speak." And so, we'll get to that at the conclusion of the segment. Uh, but I want to start out first by what we heard in the news this week, and and that is the the focus on the Stone Mountain uh, Monument, uh, which is carved in the side of Stone Mountain in Georgia, and discussions about what should be done uh, with this monument. And of course, it's it's very polarizing, as many of these statue debates have been, uh, in that you have uh, people, activists, uh, uh, advocacies for racial justice and so forth that say, uh, this monument needs to be uh, removed. Uh, So that's one side of it in looking at the connection of the Confederate uh, leaders that are um, uh, memorialized in that monument and uh, the connections there with uh, slavery and with the the preservation of culture in the South that was so much a part of the drive uh, for the Confederacy in attempting to break up the union and um, uh, to ha- determine really their own, own, direction. And so you have that on one side, on the other side, you have uh, many others who say, well, this is a, a major attraction. Uh, some, of course, looking at it in terms of what it, what it stands for, or at least the identity that it portrays. And we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, others saying, uh, look, this is a part of our history and we need to put it in the proper context. Uh, so this is kind of the middle ground there that's saying that, you know, some of these things remind us of a time and an era of great difficulty, of struggle, of, of, of trying to extend the values that are enshrined in uh, our, our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence in terms of what established government and the the, the structure of a free society and how we govern ourselves. So there are those that are saying we need to put this in the proper context. We need the, the, the part there where Stone Mountain is. This needs to be uh, much more about telling the story of that era, what happened, what we need to know and remember f- from it as guidance for how we engage with these issues and understand them today. So here you have all of this converging uh, on this monument, and the reason why this monument becomes such a, a focal point is it's considered uh, in, the, in the language of those who, who, who have uh, recognized it as the granddaddy of Confederate monuments. It's the it's the, the major one. It, it's, it's large, it's big, it's a mural in the side of a mountain. And so there are concerns uh, about how, how do you address this? How, how do you navigate uh, through this? And so this has been in the news and it, it really shows the complexity of it. It shows the complexity of this issue uh, in a number of ways. Uh, one with this monument would be the challenges of actually changing it or removing it. I mean, the cost of millions of dollars for something this large uh, to, uh, to try to change it. Uh, but it's also the recognition that uh, the monument itself uh, has its roots as do many other monuments uh, in an era, a time period not going back to the Confederacy, but later, uh, that was trying to preserve uh, an identity, um, a a connection with the heritage and culture uh, of the South, uh, which included some of these areas, racial injustice and of course slavery, uh, that uh, are very, very challenging and and need to be addressed and need to be part of our conversation. And, and, And then also to groups, we have, there's more, there's. Fringe groups, radical groups here that uh, um, uh, that can't look uh, at other uh, races or other human beings with equality. They uh, they perpetuate some of these really horrendous ideas uh, about uh, about race uh, and about and, and ideas that it, that are not inclusive and recognizing the dignity and respect that should be shown to 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 any other human being uh, and then you also have other groups too that that certainly want and advocate the removal uh, of these kinds of statues and and sometimes even by force you know so we've seen some of that as well so you throw all this into the mix and it certainly becomes very politically. It becomes very, very challenging uh, to do this. And so I don't want to focus so much on the Stone Mountain issue as much as it brings back to conversation and back in front of us a lot of other uh, statues uh, that are around the country and of certainly in the state of Texas uh, that are at the, at the focal point of this controversy. And one of the things that we need to do in approaching this topic, and this is where I tried, uh, I w- really wanted to get a guest on here, that a historian that could, uh, that would be able to go back and look at this, and I'm going to be posting some articles on the Facebook page that's on politics with Eric Morrow. And uh, so, th- so if we go back and look at the history of this, we can see, uh, and this is available through numerous sources, but it shows us that the bulk of these statues, the majority of these statues, uh, were installed as symbols of white supremacy during periods of U.S. history when Black American civil rights were aggressively under attack. And so this is the period between about 1885 and 1920. And this is also known as the Jim Crow era. It's post-Civil War, it's post-Reconstruction. It's a time when governmental control was returned to the Southern states in in the 1870s and into the 1880s, in which states began to try to reverse uh, laws or put laws in place that were discriminatory, uh, both in in all areas, social, political, economic, to try to uh, uh, counter uh, the, the changes that had been made by the 14th Amendment and uh, by uh, uh, the federal government in extending rights to vote uh, and other rights uh, to African Americans. And so this is a very challenging period in our history. It, it, it's, it's very challenging for the nation as a whole, but it's certainly very challenging when we look back at this uh, to see the levels of discrimination that came out of a, a culture and an era and a time uh, that, that, that was racist in, in many ways uh, that uh, sought to embed that and, and to perpetuate that in, in, in a lot of ways through different uh, means and mechanisms and structures in society. And, and so this is some of what we're still dealing with today. I mean, those of us who teach uh, civil rights history, teach political history, uh, we make these connections, we go back to this period, and we see how this is perpetuated. And, and the, the erection of these monuments, of these statues that commemorate um, uh, Confederate leaders uh, are, are part of that, because they happened during this time. Uh, uh, it, it's very clear uh, that the, the, the focus during this time, uh, in, the, in the early 1900s, uh, were connected to these sweeping laws to disenfranchise Black Americans and to keep a society uh, segregated. Uh, it, it was a kind of a way of taking Civil War history, uh, but but also, even though it, it was uh, the Confederacy came out on the losing side, it was to kind of remake it and shape it uh, in a way that memorialized what what the old South was and what what it. Uh, uh, what was at its core and what was uh, really a part of a very hierarchical structure to society with uh, a very agrarian, but also then, you know, power, political, social, economic power vested in uh, the wealthy, the plantation owners, uh, and, the, and to perpetuate that structure and, and those ideas and ideals. And so we see this as really the first era, this, this post-Civil War, post reconstruction era uh, was a time where uh, really the goal in perpetuating this culture uh, was to prepare future generations of, of white Southerners to respect and defend the principles of the Confederacy. Uh, so th- this could be, uh, I wanna talk about three different eras here and this is the, the really the first one. Now, the, another round of these statues continued to be made and to continue to be erected as we move uh, further into the 1900s and into the 1920s. Uh, from 1920 to 1940, uh, this this uh, a kind of second wave of statue building uh, was a time period when we saw the attempts to address uh, lynchings, uh, the practice of lynchings uh, in the South. And this is a time when african American themselves were trying to work through the legal system, they were trying to work with presidential administrations, they were trying to work through Congress, and eventually this is through the courts, of trying to make uh, a lynching uh, illegal. And and of course lynching here was the uh, people taking uh, the law, taking what they saw was justice into their own hands uh, without going through proper procedures, proper investigations, and it, it just, a, again, a terrible period in our country when uh, you had thousands of people who lost their lives uh, without due process uh, because people took matters into their own hands and, and did not respect the laws that were in place in our country or see that those laws applied to every individual. So this was another period when uh, the push was on to address the lynching issue Uh, when uh, there there was a pushback against this in trying to to perpetuate again, this culture and this identity. Um, During this period, a significant portion of these monuments were erected on courthouse grounds. Again, connecting here this idea of of the old South of the Confederacy and its uh, its culture and its ideals uh, with governance. And so another uh, very, very challenging period. The third era of this came in the 1950s into the 1970s. So again, the first one was post-Civil War reconstruction, the Jim Crow era. Second period was the period of of, of pushback uh, by uh, black Americans on related to lynchings and trying to get government to respond to this and to apply the constitution, apply due process. The third period was during the civil rights era where we look at from the 1954 Brown versus board of education and following where a number of schools and colleges in the South were named after Confederates. So Confederate leaders, um, uh, those that were identified as Confederate heroes. uh, So schools and colleges were being named or changing their names uh, in association with uh, these uh, leaders again uh, emphasizing this connection with southern culture with 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 these aspects of southern culture i don't i don't want it to be misconstrued here that i'm talking about all uh, elements of southern culture it's just these ideals that went along with uh, what the confederacy stood for and what the um, kind of what the prevailing uh, norms of that culture in the south that were very discriminatory, uh, very uh, 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 not focused on equity, not focused on the dignity of, of all human beings, no matter what their race. I mean, these, the, the, this, these structures that uh, were, there was an attempt to keep perpetuating these uh, even till today. And this is why we have some of these issues that we're, we're dealing with. So these, these three eras, uh, this is the time when the, the changing of names of colleges and schools, the uh, erection of statues memorializing uh, Confederate leaders. Uh, th- this, these are the historical context in which we can connect this. And so that's very critical in addressing this that we, we understand that, that we look back and we see what were the motivations so long after uh, the Civil War, after the end of the con- uh, uh, Confederacy, uh, that that these uh, people be continue to be memorialized and these statues were erected. So now I come with that context, and this is why I think it, I encourage all of you to do more reading and engage with this issue on a more substantive level, uh, because you need that background. You need that understanding. You need to know what was going on in terms of race uh, in these periods, because it, it is very challenging history. It is very challenging uh, if you're looking at this in terms of equality, you're looking at this in terms of of the values uh, that we uh, hold in this country and that we uh, advocate for every person, that if you look back, you can see that that, that was certainly not the case. And we, we struggled, we struggled as a country, we struggled in, in so many different ways uh, to to realize those to, uh, for, for every person and we, and we still we still continue that that struggle in, in many ways. But now we bring this up to to the current time and we look at uh, the defense of these statues over against those who say they should be removed. Uh, you have those who are saying, no, these statues represent, we are, they represent, uh, it's the name of our city, it's the name of our county, Uh, it's a name that we associate with. Uh, Whereas others are saying, no, these are symbols of of racial injustice. These are symbols of a time when uh, these people sought to uphold a structure of society and an environment that was very discriminatory, uh, that advocated slavery, uh, that even when slavery was abolished, that continued to try to put structures in place uh, that uh, uh, discriminated against uh, Black Americans. And one of the things that, I, as I said, I started with this segment, if the statues could speak. So this is where that this issue today, and this is why this becomes so complex and why both sides need to really understand this is that I think many people today do not understand those historical contexts. They don't know actually for many who these people were and they don't know what, they were advocates of. They don't know what, they, what their ideology was. And, and, and so what they associate with is the identity to that con- contributes to today. Uh, as I said, this is the name of our town. This is the name of our county. Uh, this person has to be significant because there's a statue here that memorializes them. And it's been here all my life. Uh, I've re- ran around that statue on the courthouse lawn. I've driven past it uh, every day for decades. There's a it's woven into an identity that I think in many cases and for many people not all because there would some I think that that we we really have to be careful and 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 we see that are people who are advocating some of these ideas about race uh, and and uh, uh, diversity that are dangerous. But I think for many people, if they if that person could speak, if that statue could speak and and say the things, the beliefs, the ideas that that person had in the 19th century, that, that they, would, they would hear things that they could not associate with today. I think they would be challenged in terms of their identification with that statue and even through the statue to that person because they would hear things from someone that they could say, wow, I, I, don't, I don't think that way. I don't believe that way. I don't think that way about our country. I don't think that way about our, our laws or our culture. And, and so that's why I asked the question, if the statues could speak. And this is where we're in an environment where we need to challenge people to, to look at it that way. Because what is happening is you have those who want them removed that are saying these statues represent something that is un-American. These statues represent a time and an era and ideas uh, that are not about the values that we should share uh, as people in this country. Uh, they're not... a, a uh, about the inclusiveness that we should have, that 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 welcomes uh, people to embrace those values and to 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 work for the common good and to uphold liberty uh, for people and to work against those things that would injure or limit uh, that in some way. Uh, so so that's the conversation that we should should be in. It's it's really kind of challenging people to say by association, do you, do you know what this person believed, what they held, what they did, what, how they saw the world around them, what they thought society should be? And, and I really think a lot of people would, would, if they heard that, if they heard that person uh, in where they were in the 19th century, uh, they would not be able to agree with those things. They would say, wow, uh, yeah, this is not who I am. Uh, this is not what I believe. And I think they would see that it's much more about uh, those, those values and our understanding of what our society should be striving for and not so much about upholding an identity uh, that is connected to a, a statue and thus through the statue connected to uh, that person uh, that's being memorialized. So I ask you to think about that. If the statues could speak, if, if that person could speak today what are the things that they would say that might be very contradictory or very challenging to the how we identify ourselves as citizens of our communities, as as uh, Americans, as as we associate with the values that we think are critical and necessary uh, for a, a free society, a thriving a democracy, uh, and I think it will give us a greater depth of understanding of of this challenging issue and what really decisions need to be made on um, people coming together and having honest conversations around these issues of race, around these issues of identity, what these statues represent and the decisions that should be made to, to broaden that identity really. To, if, if there are things in the way that that, that that are negative and limit the identity that we should have and the values that we should share, Uh, Then those are things that should be removed, whether they're statues, whether they're political, social or economic structures uh, that are embedded within our society uh, that are not representative of those values and of human dignity, of of liberty uh, and of of other uh, areas and opportunities that we all should be able uh, to have and experience. So think about that. I'll post some things online to uh, read related to this. We're gonna take a short break and we'll come back uh, with our next segment of the show, which is the politics of a pandemic. We'll be right back.
1: Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook, search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along.
0: Texas is a Texas based history
1: podcast from historian, Dr. T. Lindsay Baker, find a new episode every Thursday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. We are excited to announce that KTRL 90.5 FM is now streaming online. Tune in anytime to catch your favorite shows from Tarleton Public Radio. Relax and enjoy the best of NPR news, classical, jazz, and all of our local programs like essential jazz, Beatles and beyond, and more. To listen to your KTRL favorites, visit tarletonradio.com or click listen live at KTRL.fm.
0: Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow and we are uh, coming to you with this episode as we do each week at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM, and these episodes are available after the show on SoundCloud and also where you get your podcasts, but also remind you that each week that in addition to being live on air, we're also on the internet at tarletonradio.com, so be sure to uh, plan to listen to us each week or if you're not able to, to catch us uh, after the show online uh, through SoundCloud or as a podcast. So the second segment of the show gets us back to what's in front of us uh, uh, right now, every moment, and that is the pandemic and the spreading of the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus and the challenges that are going with that. And of course, on this show, our focus has been in a number of different ways as it relates to government and policy. Uh, but I want to come back to something that we talked about several months ago uh, related to the politics of a pandemic and look at this uh, from several different facets that uh, then engage politics. And and we all know this has become very political. It's political in terms of what people think government should do. Uh, It's political in terms of the response of political leaders and how then that is addressed within a political environment, a very highly charged polarized partisan environment where if one person does one thing, the other side is, is going to be critical of that. Uh, and, and where we see challenges in, in the level of collaboration, uh, it's also very political, as we'll talk about here in a moment, uh, between states and the federal government. Uh, it's critical and, and and political in terms of policy and really understanding this issue and, and examining it and making decisions, which our political leaders, our elected officials, will have to make going forward of how we are better prepared uh, to handle this and how we deal with the repercussions of it uh, going forward, both economic, social, health, and so on. So I wanted to come back to this, the politics of a pandemic, just to keep in front of you uh, some of these uh, kind of critical issues that do make this very political. And the first one, and and some of this is being drawn from an article uh, that was published back in May 26th, on May 26th of 2020. Um, It was based on several studies that are being done about why some countries respond better than others. And of course, this coming out in the midst of this global uh, pandemic, Uh, but this work and this study and looking at countries all over the world, and of course, looking at uh, epidemic outbreaks in 146 countries since 1995, uh, brings up some very significant issues in a way of kind of analyzing some of this and the politics of it at the moment. And I'll post this article uh, on the Facebook page. Uh, It is uh, an an article that has some extensive research tied to it. And I think it would be at least if you just engage with the article, but you could move on into the research to look at Uh, some of these uh, points of analysis and how they uh, determine the the ability of a government and of a country uh, to respond to something like this. And so the the first area that this research engages in is is what they call state capacity. Uh, The uh, ability of of the state, and here we're talking about nation, so state and political science, political studies, we're looking at the world itself, a nation is synonymous with state, even though we have individual states within our nation. But state capacity is primarily focused on the response, the ability to respond and the resources uh, that government has to do that. And so how does this become political? Uh, some may you know, look at this and of course this might be the initial response. How, how does a pandemic and a, something like this become uh, political. Well, it becomes very political in a system like ours when you have a uh, what we call federalism, when you have a federal system, which is a, a country, a federal government uh, that's made up of uh, state governments that have a certain level of independence. Now, that's changed over time. Uh, uh, we uh, teach federalism in our government classes, both uh, uh, national and state government classes to try to help students understand how this has developed and what factors have gone in and, and giving uh, federal government more uh, authority and expanding its sphere of authority into state and even local government. Uh, but you still have some some level of, of distinction that goes back to our constitution, to uh, uh, various clauses and, and several of the uh, amendments, the ninth and 10th amendment. Uh, that sets up this relationship that gives states uh, a level of uh, autonomy, of function, uh, even within a federal system. And so the challenges of that and governing in that way uh, really come into play when we see something that is as widespread as this is. It's impacting every state, uh, it's impacting the world, but you see the challenges there in terms of coordination uh, and I wish I had more time and perhaps we can dedicate a future uh, episode into looking at some of this and going back uh, historically and talking about some of the uh, the key uh, periods and areas such as you know natural disasters to economic and uh, uh, conflict, military conflict, economic uh, uh, problems and challenges uh, to events like 9-11 uh, to court cases and acts of Congress that have had an impact on this relationship. But here here we can see very clearly, and this has been a challenge in this pandemic, has been the the capacity of the federal government in coordination with state governments. And I think something that clearly this past week that points that out is the lack, again, of uh, medical supplies, of of protective gear and other medical supplies in the fight against the pandemic. So for me, this is one that
1: early on, in looking
0: at the time frame and looking at the options that federal government had in coordination with states. So if you if you draw a timeline here, we saw early on that the federal government was not necessarily going to step in and try to coordinate using its its powers and using its um, its authority. Uh, to be able to coordinate the production of medical supplies and protective equipment. They they primarily left this up to the the companies that were doing this, uh, the states, and trying to secure what they needed. And it it really lacked a level of coordination and forethought to say, okay, where are we going to be two or three or four months from now when this thing may be moving around and we need uh, more uh, resources. So there were some things that were done, but they were minimal. Uh, States were complaining that they were having to compete against each other uh, with companies to get the supplies that they need. Uh, So response, that's just one example. There's a whole number of issues in response and resources that could be looked at. uh, But the the focus here is, and then this is where we we have a a presidential administration uh, that follows that line, which has been a uh, very uh, common uh, perspective in the Republican party that the federal government should not intervene, that, that states should have uh, more latitude, uh, especially when it comes to uh, not just federal programs, but in, in decision and spending in certain areas uh, related to federal dollars and resources. And so not so much the, the, the focus was on how do we collaborate and coordinate this as a national effort, it was more, okay, let's get resources to the state so that they can do what they need to do. And in a lot of uh, issues and situations, uh, that makes sense. It's it's a principle of letting the people in that region or in that state govern themselves and make those decisions through their elected bodies and officials uh, in a way that meets their uh what the, how they see government should respond in a particular situation. But in, in terms of a pandemic like this, it becomes very, very challenging. And so one of the things when we're measuring this, when it look, we look at it politically, is that it doesn't necessarily matter that a, a country is a democracy or not in, in terms of capacity. Does a country have the capacity and the resources? Most going into this would have looked at the United States and said, yes there's there should be the capacity there there should be the resources so a a wealthy country Uh, government can um, engage the resources that it needs it's just that that was not the approach of the current administration and it was not uh, uh, it was not facilitated uh, at the federal level as well and thus you have these ongoing challenges uh, that we've had and so this is an area that's going to need to be looked at going forward especially in the future by federal government in collaboration with the states in terms of the capacity to be able to uh, uh, meet a crisis uh, like this. So state capacity is one area where politics come front and center because you have decisions and actions on the part of one group, one side, and that being viewed politically by those on the other side, looking at how they would have used the power of the federal government uh, to engage with this crisis. So very much a, a, a political challenge. And I think we're gonna see some of this coming out in the presidential campaign. I think as we move closer and we uh, uh, get to the debates leading up to the election, that a lot of this is gonna be under analysis. And it will also go back to the Obama administration. Uh, the Biden strategy strategy will probably be to look back at the preparations that were made by the Obama administration and maybe even back further to be prepared for something like this, as well as what his ideas would have been if he would have been president over against uh, what, what Trump has said and done and what his administration has done in the midst of this. Uh, and so that, that's gonna we're gonna definitely see politics on stage front and center uh, when that happens. The second aspect of this Uh, that comes out of this study uh, is economic inequality. And so here is a factor that determines uh, how a country responds better than others. So countries with higher levels of economic inequality, so larger numbers that are, would be considered poor or economically challenged uh, that contributes to the ability of a country to respond because uh, Many of those people live day to day, many people uh, uh, that are trying to uh, take care of their families and, and pay their bills uh, are working, have to work, they can't uh, shelter in place, they can't uh, maybe take the protective measures that others would have the luxury of doing. And so uh, economic inequality comes in as, as a factor in this. Now. There's an element I want to add in this as well, and this is one that we've seen front and center in the last few weeks, especially as this has spiked in several states, including Texas, and we see the response of people to mandates to close bars, to wear masks, to limit travel, and that is political culture. And so I think economic inequality has to also go with political culture, because when we look at our country, uh, there is a, a, a diversity of political culture around the country. And we talked about this a few weeks ago uh, with Cal Gilson from SNU, and looking at the political culture of Texas and how that engages with a crisis like this. What, what kind of challenges does it present? And one of those challenges that we're seeing, and you see it not just in, in the, the general public, you see it in political leaders as well, and that's the pushback against government, state government, in terms of these mandates, uh, in emphasizing, well, it, you know, uh, government shouldn't tell me whether or not I should have to wear a mask. Um, uh, this is an infringement upon my freedom, my liberty. Uh, we have a culture here, and this is why culture comes in that that has a lower level of trust, and so that's that's part of this as well. How People view the role of government uh, in their lives, and and that really kind of gets us into this kind of third area here that I want to look at, uh, and that is um, how political culture uh, impacts a crisis like this, and uh, what it uh, uh, what we're dealing with with people who in a political culture who don't have that high level of trust in government. So here you are, the combination of a free society where people can push back against government and we have kind of encouragement to do that to not always be in agreement or to look with skepticism Uh, I mean that's kind of built into our system Uh, but then also at a time when government has to step forward and try to look at uh, this not just as a public health crisis but how do you uh, how do you put boundaries there in terms of the community how do you put things in place Uh, in order to try to protect health and limit the negative consequences of this. Uh, So to me, those two go together, economic inequality, but you also have to consider uh, political culture. So the the final area uh, in this, and then looking at this politics of a pandemic in this segment, is the policy area. Uh, It's an area that has to be examined because you have to look at uh, what room historically and at the present time is there uh, for policy formulation and uh, implementation that uh, uh, is directed toward the crisis. So what I mean by that is that uh, what has come before this that makes this more challenging. So in Texas that would for example would be is that public health policy in this state has not been in the forefront. Uh, That has not necessarily been, been seen as a primary role of state government. And so our public health emphasis in the state uh, is certainly challenged and always has been in terms of resources and the ability to kind of engage with a crisis like this. So that's where we were talking about with Cal Gilson was that it's kind of a, can be a perfect storm. You have the challenge of, of limited public health focus with a challenge of limited trust in government And then it makes this mix where, you know, people are just not going to follow. Many people are not going to follow the directives that that government is trying to give. But it also becomes very political when you move forward and looking at, okay, how do we go from here and address these issues and be better prepared for what will happen in the future? How do we go forward and address through policymaking the consequences of what has happened? on a number of fronts, not just public health, but economics uh, and other areas as well. And so that itself becomes very political because it's often driven by political ideology. How do I view the role of government and what government should be doing? How What is the, that role in this issue and in this crisis? And so that becomes very politically charged because that factors into interest group advocacy. It factors into political party agendas. Uh, It factors into the views of constituents for someone who's trying to get elected to office. And then, of course, it factors into uh, the dynamics of legislative bodies uh, and party identification uh, in both the the legislature, executive, and and maybe even in the judiciary at at points and times. So the politics of a pandemic, this is something that we should be very much aware of, uh, looking at, one, as I said, the dynamics between state and federal government, state capacity or, or national capacity to be able to respond to this. The second area is connecting economic inequality uh, or not just connecting, but talking about political culture and how that views government and government's role in addition to the, the, the numbers of people that may be challenged uh, to follow Uh, public health mandates, uh, because they they have to be out there, they're going to be exposed, they have to work, they have to be in an environment that may uh, uh, create health risk for them. And then, of course, the policy area. This is very political as well, uh, because then you're talking about how do we address this and what is government's role in responding to this or being better prepared uh, going forward. So we'll come back to more of this as we see these things developing uh, in this election cycle, uh, as we see uh, what administration is in place uh, post-election, as we look at the Texas legislature convening uh, in the spring and looking at some of the impact of this uh, on the state uh, to know that politics is very much involved uh, in what is happening and what is going to be happening related to this in the months ahead. We're gonna take another short break and we'll be back for our third and final segment of the show today. Be right back.
1: It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes and you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. (laughs) They can. Should've worn my glasses. So, visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed.
0: Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre diabetes awareness partners. Hello, I'm Janice Horrock, and my radio home is KTRL 90.5 FM for news
1: from Feature Story News in London. I'm Ollie Barrett. Sports Touchdown, Tarleton, Texans,
0: jazz, and classical music. Welcome back to On Politics. Glad you've joined us today as we get into our last segment of the show. I appreciate you uh, staying with me here with a full show of just me. Uh, we'll hope to have someone in the interview chair next week. Again, as we look to discuss other critical and very timely issues uh, in the realm of politics, government, and policy. Uh, this final issue today is something that uh, we talked about a Uh, About six weeks ago or so when we uh, interviewed James Dickey, the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, and that was the upcoming meeting of the Republican Party, its convention, actually, uh, that is or was planned to be held in Houston next week. And so this uh, uh, news that is coming has come out this week, especially with the spike in cases uh, with the coronavirus pandemic here in Texas. The news was that uh, the city of Houston, under the direction of the mayor and public health officials there, uh, were canceling the convention. Uh, Now, this is a convention that would have drawn approximately 6,000 people. So it's one of the largest political conventions in the nation, if not the world. Like uh, 6,000 plus people to Houston uh, during a time when Houston is the epicenter in Texas uh, of uh, this pandemic. And so, uh, of course, this became very uh, uh, political very quickly in terms of the back and forth between the party and between the city. Uh, the, the, really the decision came after the uh, mayor. Uh, the, the mayor is uh, Sylvester Turner and he directed the city's legal department to work with the Houston First Corporation which operates the convention center Uh, to review that contract uh, with the Republican Party. And so then a letter was sent uh, to the state Republican executive committee uh, earlier this week and the state party's governing board that canceled uh, the gathering. So you can imagine the response here, Chairman Dickey, who we interviewed uh, a month or so ago uh, said that the party's legal team was reviewing uh, the letter. Uh, and that they would have an update. They were looking at what legal options they could pursue. Uh, They did have a plan in place uh, to have a virtual meeting, uh, but they do have contracts with vendors, hotels, and sponsors. I mean, here we are a week out. And of course, the challenges of canceling a major event uh, like this. And so this has become uh, very controversial. There'll probably be more going on uh, with it this week. The uh, earlier in the week, the mayor had warned that health inspectors would have the authority to shut it down if certain guidelines were not followed. The party officials had agreed that they would follow various safety practices uh, and they had uh, voted to uh, proceed with the event. And then came Turner's announcement on Wednesday uh, in which Dickey criticized saying it was seeking to deny political parties critical electoral function uh, especially, and this is what they pointed out, after the mayor recently allowed protesters to demonstrate. So the, the, the demonstrations in Houston, the, uh, there was the, the, the parade and demonstrations after uh, the, the death of George Floyd. Um, so this is now in back and forth and we'll see what happens if they are online or if they actually try to have this in person or not, uh, but very, very challenging. And I bring this up because I also wanna direct our attention Uh, to another convention uh, that is planning to happen face-to-face, and that is the Republican National Convention. And so this convention has been moved. It was moved from North Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. But this past week, uh, a group brought a lawsuit. Jacksonville, Jacksonville residents who live and work near the Veterans Memorial Arena, where the convention is set to be held, uh, filed a lawsuit arguing that the convention will be a nuisance, uh, injurious to the health, well, welfare, and property rights of the plaintiffs, and result in massive spread of COVID-19 among the persons in attendance and throughout the city of Jacksonville and Northeast Florida. Of course, as you may know too, Florida is another epicenter uh, of the growth in COVID-19 cases and there's the concern here based on what happened in Tulsa. And one one of the things that the plaintiffs point to in this lawsuit is that the Tulsa rally, uh, because of the refusal to wear masks or practice social distancing, uh, that it it resulted in a a spike in cases. Uh, They're they're also giving an option here if the convention cannot be shut down entirely, uh, they want for limiting attendance to only 2,500 people, instead of the 12 to 15,000 attendees uh, currently expected. So here we go. Uh, and then this, really the title of this segment is to convene or not to convene. I mean, in that we are in the middle of this crisis. Uh, this becomes a very political issue because you see that in Texas, the Democratic Party had their convention virtually this past month. Uh, The National Democratic Party is doing the same thing, but yet you see this movement forward uh, by the state Republican Party and the National Republican Party. And I'm not pointing this out to take one side or the other here in as much as there certainly has to be a public health and safety concern because we are seeing that this is being spread by uh, close contact we are also seeing that the most vulnerable in terms of serious health issues and possibly even death are, are those who are 50, 55 or older. And that certainly is the primary uh, age group uh, of those attending uh, these conventions. Uh, that this could be disastrous. I mean, that that's that's very much a, a, a con- should be a concern. And then how is that mitigated? And, and though some are saying, OK, mask, uh, uh, hand sanitizer, social distancing as much as possible. Uh, they're, they're trying to put in safety precautions to address all of these things. But again, it in it, it, the other things that we've seen and what's happened with this uh, virus, not just in this country, but around the world, this has the potential here uh, to be very disastrous. And, and I think it's overly optimistic to think that they can get through these kinds of meetings with this number of people and not expect there to be some significant consequences in terms of sharing this. But you can see that this again becomes very politicized because it's, it's and then this then impacts uh, how people who identify with those parties are viewing other implications of what we should open, how we should reopen, of uh, everything from public schools in the fall to um, uh you know, businesses and and certain types of businesses or whether you wear a mask or not, uh, this is where all of this is kind of getting mingled together and makes this very unique and unprecedented, Uh, not only in terms of a crisis that we're seeing, but also in terms of of how it just impacts politics in general Uh, and how uh, at at times here, I think, and this is, I'm I'm not saying this pointing at one side or the other. I think we, we can see this with people whatever side of the political spectrum they're on or whatever party they identify with is that decisions, critical decisions are not being driven by data and information. Uh, They're being uh, driven by, well, I'm of this party and this party is saying this. And so therefore I accept it. Uh, And that, that is concerning in and of itself. That's concerning because uh, one, it doesn't necessarily question those things based on what data and information is available, uh, but also it's kind of a blind following uh, of, of people who many times are not experts in terms of these issues. They may be experts in terms of politics and, and practices of governance and so on, but they're certainly not health experts. Uh, the other side of it is that it becomes very challenging because, uh, you have people who are are just not questioning it. they're not they're not looking into it for themselves. They're not making decisions on their part uh, that could be that could protect them and could uh, be of benefit to them. And so I think that's is, this is where it becomes very critical, I think, for all of us, no matter where we are on the political spectrum, is that we recognize that in terms of of uh, the political environment and what is happening and how it influences us and that we work to to get more information, that we're not just following this blindly, but that we are ga- engaging in these issues in, in a way that says, oh, I wanna learn more, I wanna know more, I want to uh, be informed of myself so that I can make the decision, not based on my party affiliation. You know, It's one thing if we apply a certain political ideology to what you think government should do or not do, but it's another thing to just kind of follow that blindly just because your political party says that's what you should do. So that's it for us today uh, on the show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome you each week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM, and we'll look forward to being with you again next week on politics.
1: This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Higher and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.